Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to church on this beautiful but quite chilly Palm Sunday. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together. Yeah. 
storm surrounding me, let it break at your name, still, call the sea to still, rage in me to still, every wave at your name, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, Jesus. darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus, you silence here, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, Jesus, 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 you make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. Silence here, Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. Your name is a light that the shadows can't deny. Your name cannot be overcome. Your name is a light. Jesus, to change our world, our lives, that has defeated the powers of darkness. And we stand here today as people of the conquering King. We thank you for being present with us today. We thank you for all that you desire to do in our lives during this time together. Be glorified as we open our hearts to you. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let me encourage you to take a, a few moments, maybe a few extra moments to share a word of greeting. Maybe introduce yourself to someone you do not know.
So it is great to uh, see you as we gather for worship on this Palm Sunday. It's always fun to watch the children uh, come in with the palm branches and and the excitement of that. And uh, it is a a great day as we gather for worship and as we begin uh, this week of special things moving into what the church has historically called Holy Week. Uh, there are uh, there's an insert in your bulletin with the variety of services and gatherings uh, this week uh, commemorating this special week. Um, Thursday night uh, we will host a Monday Thursday service, and this is a a time to think about the the last night before Jesus goes to the cross. It's a it's a service filled with symbol, uh, with a, a number of, of as well as scripture and um, sharing communion together. So we hope you'll join us at 7 on Thursday night. Friday, we will uh, be having a, a Journey to the Cross event take place here in the sanctuary from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. It's a come-and-go event. You can feel free to come, stay as long as you want. But we have, we'll have the, the sanctuary transformed into some, uh, some designations of things about what the cross means for us, for our world, for others. And uh, it's a chance for, for you to just to ponder, to meditate to think about the cross. Uh, there are things for, for children as well as adults. And so we, we hope that you'll find the time to come. You can feel free to, to stay as little or as long as you want uh, anytime throughout, the, throughout Friday. And then next Sunday is a, very, is a completely different schedule of activities. So please take note of that. At 7.45, we have a, a baptism service. Uh, we have 11 people who are going to be baptized next Sunday morning. So that's exciting. And hopefully you will be here and uh, witness that and uh, be a part of that event. And, and then we'll have a breakfast following that. And then uh, our uh, combined worship service at 10 o'clock. Uh, for the breakfast, there's an insert in your bulletin about helping out with that. Uh, maybe uh, donating some food and the items. If you have any questions about that, contact Pastor John and uh, he can help you with some specific things that they may need. So we, we hope you'll participate in that. Also in the back, there is a, a little booklet for children and families, uh, anyone for that matter, uh, to take you through this Holy Week. Uh, just short devotionals for each day. Feel free to pick up one of those as you leave this morning. At this time, we're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. You call me from the grave by name. You call me out of all my shame. I see the old has passed away, the new has come. Now I have resurrection power, living on the inside, Jesus. You have given us freedom, no longer bound by sin and dying. with us. I'm dressed in your royalty. Your Holy Spirit lives in me. I see my past has been redeemed. The new
the power of Christ, uh, we come and offer our prayers. And as we pray today, if, if uh, maybe it best expresses your, the heart of your prayers this morning to come and kneel at the altar rail as we pray, please come and join me. Father, we, we come to this, this time of prayer and we give thanks to you that you hear us when we pray. We thank you for inviting us to pray, to pray boldly and honestly. And for giving us the courage to relinquish all of our burdens and our concerns into your loving hands. Father, as we gather today, we we pray for your grace upon all who are struggling today with grief or illness, pain and trouble. We pray for Dick Alderman and his family in their time of grief and sorrow, as well as others who this day feel the pain and the, the sorrow of death and loss. We know that you are with them. We know that you are with us. We pray that you'll comfort every need and every aching heart and every burdened soul. Father, we pray that you will heal all of our diseases with the grace and the power of who you are. We pray that you will give hope and courage and healing strength to Leonard Watson, Florence Tuber, to Rosalind Danner and Isabella Doherty, to Tim Nichols and Bob Brown and Louise Princell, Hudson Hess, to Nancy Cole and Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, Chuck Barrett, to Cheryl O'Brien, Ben King, Doris Sepian, and Isla Shea, to Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, to Ella Woolsey, Mike Raybuck, to Bevrett, to Micah Christensen, to Linda Roth and Emily Cricklar, and to others that are on our minds and our hearts today. We pray for your healing grace. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in our church. And even this morning as we watched all these children come and lay down palm branches, we are so grateful for all of the ways in which you blessed us with children and the opportunities we have to teach them and to serve them and to love them. We pray, Father, for the ministries of other churches around us as they serve as well. We pray for the Oromel Church and Pastor Charlie Little. May your grace be upon this gathering of believers, that they would know your resurrection power upon them and your strength and grace as they bear witness of you to those around them. 
Father, we continue to pray for the needs of our nation and our world. We, we think of, of the leaders of our nation and continually needing strength and wisdom and guidance that can only come from you. And all the many decisions that need to be made and in the midst of, of divisiveness, in the midst of the burdens, in the midst of violence and, and all of the things that trouble us as a people. We ask, Father, for your intervention. We pray, Father, that, that you would continue to, to help those who are, who are recovering from tragedies and disasters. We continue to pray for refugees throughout the world. We pray for all who live with the threat of epidemics and uncertainty about the next meal, the next drink of water, a safe place to sleep for the night. We ask that you'd bring an end to the suffering and the struggle of so many. And we pray that you would make us particularly sensitive to these needs that may not directly affect us, but are important to us because they are important to you. Father, we pray for, for your people, your church around the world. And as we, even as a congregation, are making plans for an intergenerational trip down to Puerto Rico, we ask that you will bless uh, the preparations of that. We pray you'll lay a burden on the hearts of people who, who should go and will have, be able to, to help and to, and to be transformed through this kind of experience. We pray, Father, for all who are preparing for short-term, short-term ministries throughout this summer. We ask that you would prepare and bless them. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who face opposition and persecution for their faith. And we think especially today of Pastor Andrew Brunson, who is jailed and awaiting trial in Turkey on false charges. And we pray, Father, that, that you will help him and give him strength in the midst of his suffering. We pray that you will intervene to allow him to be released. And it, but in the midst of this wait... May you minister your grace to him, give him strength, and may he bear witness to you, of you, to those around him. Father, open our eyes to your presence with us. Give us your grace to continue to trust you as we surrender to you. And as we move into this holy week, as we think particularly about the passion and the death and the resurrection of Christ, may we be stirred anew of what he's done for us and your love for us. We pray all of this to the mercy of Christ, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Our scripture reading is from Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. Let's follow the ancient church ritual of standing during the gospel reading. Mark 15, 33 through 39, hear the word of the Lord. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely... This man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. 
If you are between two years old and third grade, you are welcome to follow me to Children's Church and Junior Church. Please be seated.
The um, the pastor and writer, theologian of about 50 years ago, A.W. Tozer once said, what I think about God is the most important thing about me. What I think about God is the most important thing about me. I've mentioned that before, and I mention it again because I think he is exactly right. I'm convinced that everything about our lives is rooted in our view of God. The things that that we do eventually comes back to our view of God. The things that we don't do eventually comes back to our view of God. The way we treat other people eventually comes back to our view of God. Our, Our hopes about life come back to our view of God. What we think is right or wrong comes back to our view of God. Ultimately, Everything comes back to our view of God because we are creatures made in the image of God for relationship with God. Everything comes back to our view of God. And when we read the scriptures, I'm convinced that the the primary point of the scriptures is not to teach us, though it does, The primary point of the scriptures is not to uh, inspire us, though it does. The primary point of the scriptures is not to show us what, what morality looks like, though it does. The primary point of the scriptures is to reveal to us the nature of God. It is to help us understand who God is. Because only when we begin to understand who God is, does it have a bearing on who we are and who we choose to be. And so the scriptures are God's way of telling us who he is. And we learn that by how he interacts with human beings, by what he asks of human beings, by the demands he places on human beings, by what he does for human beings. And at the heart of the scriptures, Revelation of who God is, is Jesus. John says that that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He is God in human form. And he comes to reveal to us the nature of who God is. And from, from his first coming to his second coming, and everything in between... Jesus is revealing to us the nature of God. And at the center of how Jesus reveals to us the nature of God is the cross. Because Jesus comes not just to reveal who God is, but to make the way possible for us to have a relationship with God. And he does that through the cross. And it is at the cross that we've been talking over the last few weeks about the shadows of the cross and how how the shadow of the cross falls on different people and how it reveals things about us. It reveals the the hard-heartedness of the religious leaders. and, And we are probably, if we're honest, can see ourselves in that. It reveals the self-interest of Pilate. And again, we see ourselves in that. It reveals the fear of the disciples. And we get that. It reveals the call on us to, to not pass by people in pain and in need, but to be God's presence to them. And we get that. It even reveals the distance between us and God as we look at the, at the religious structures of their day in the temple. But there is another shadow that I think is cast by the cross that I wonder if it isn't the most important of all of them. The most profound of every one of them. And it's really, it's not a shadow really about us. It's how the cross casts its shadow on God. 
And in casting that shadow on God, it reveals to us a clearer picture of who God is. The the shadow of the cross falls on God, I think, primarily through the words that Jesus speaks at the cross. And specifically, the words that we read this morning. Jesus, just at the point of death, cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's an interesting thing that the, that the greatest hero of our scriptures makes an accusation against God. You would think that, you know, if you and I were writing this, that would not be how we would script the story. We would script the story in such a way that God is presented in the most positive light possible. We would, we would shape the story in the way that most other religious documents shape their story in that you don't make accusations against God. You don't make accusations against the one we're worshiping. You paint that, you paint that God in the most positive light possible. And yet here is Jesus making this amazing, outrageous claim against his father. Why have you forsaken me? Throughout Jesus' entire life, he has lived for the affirmation of his father. At his baptism, when he, when he surrenders to baptism, even though he doesn't need to, he comes up out of the water and the, the gospel writers tell us that there is a voice out of heaven from God that says, this is my beloved son and I'm pleased with him. This is good. And we see instances in Jesus' life of how he continues to find affirmation in the Father in what he's doing. When he gets to the, 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 the last words that he speaks to his disciples in the upper room and the prayer in the garden, one of the things he prays and says to them is that the Father and I are one. Everything Jesus does is it's, it's the will of the Father. Every movement is because it's what the Father desires. Everything Jesus does is is because he and the Father are on the same page. And the Father is continually whispering in his ear, this is good. This is it. And now in this most agonizing moment, Jesus cries out, why have you abandoned me? I'm convinced that... Well, let me say this. There there are a variety of theories about the meaning of Jesus' words. If you read enough theologians, you will find a whole lot of theories about what, what is happening here on the cross and what's happening when Jesus makes that statement. Uh, there, there is a, a, there's one theological system that, that basically says God does indeed abandon Jesus. That he does indeed forsake Jesus in this moment. We hear it in some of the songs that we sing or we know. Michael Card is one of my favorite Christian musicians. I, I, have, I have been ministered to and spoken to through his music for more than 30 years. He writes deeply theological songs. I love his melodies. I love listening to his music. It touches me. But there's one song that, that I, I, I think... I, I'm not sure that I would agree with him. He, but he, he points out this perspective. It, it's, it's a song where the second verse of it says, Throughout your life you felt the weight of what you'd come to give. To drink for us the crimson cup so we might truly live. At last the time to love and die that dark appointed day, that one forsaken moment when the Father turned his face away. And there are other songs that we sing about God turning his face away from Jesus. And the implication is that Jesus is taking upon himself all the sins of the world. Jesus, they they are on him. All of the filth and and all of the, the sin and the evil is on Jesus. And it's just too much. And the Father in his holiness cannot look upon sin like that. And so he turns away. 
I, I can't do it. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, that seems like an awfully fragile God. It seems to me, and maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but it seems to me that that is implying that there is a point where evil is just too much for God. And granted, when you consider the compilation of all of the evil, all of the sin of human beings through the centuries, in the depth of that sin, and Jesus has taken it upon himself, it's huge. But then I think about, I think about God saying to his people, because one of the most repeated promises of God throughout Scripture is God saying to people, I will never leave you or forsake you. He makes that statement to Jacob. He makes that statement to Moses. He makes that statement to Joshua. He makes that statement to the people of Israel over and over again. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of that statement. Again and again and again, God says to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And even in the moments, as we see in the book of Hosea, even in the moments when God says, I've had enough, you're on your own, he turns right around and says, but I can never abandon you. I can never forsake you. I cannot fathom God truly turning his back on Jesus. Because if he turns his back on Jesus, what hope do we have? I don't think God is truly abandoning Jesus. But I do think that Jesus feels God has abandoned him. Because that's what sin does to us. We've all experienced it. We've all experienced doing something against God's will, knowing it, and feeling shame and guilt. And one of the next thoughts that comes to us is we feel the separation that our sin has created between us and God. Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they sin... And God comes to them to walk with them. And you'll notice God, God, I'm convinced, God knows that they have sinned. But he doesn't abandon them. He comes to them like he always has. And what do they do? They run and hide. Because they feel there's a sense in them that God doesn't want them anymore. Think about David. After he sins with Bathsheba and he writes Psalm 51, one of the things that he says in that psalm is, don't take your spirit away from me. Don't abandon me. Because why does he say that? Because he feels as if God will abandon him. He feels that separation. He can sense it. It's what Judas feels after betraying Jesus. He says he feels such remorse that he takes his own life. Because he believes that God has abandoned him because of what he's done. It's what Peter feels after he denies Jesus three times. He, he goes out and weeps in shame and guilt. Because he believes that he, he's done something that has completely cut him off from God. And yet we know that it doesn't. But you and I know that experience. We know that feeling of what our sin does to us and the shame and the guilt that we feel and how we feel as if God could never love us again. And for the first time in his life, Jesus feels that. At the very first time in his life, something he has never experienced before, he feels it. He feels abandoned. He feels the separation between him and his father, who have been intimate through eternity. None of us want to feel abandoned. It's one of the worst feelings in the world. You know, we, when we uh, work with Royal Family Kids Camp, Dealing with abused and neglected children. 
the, the children who are abused face horrific things and, and they deal with, with horrific memories and the healing of that is so difficult. But there is some evidence that actually being neglected is worse. I mean, if you're abused, at least, at least the person abusing you, a parent or someone else, knows you're alive. When you're de- neglected, when you're abandoned, you feel as if you're worthless. One of the worst things in the world is not so not necessarily that people get angry at us and yell at us, it's that they, they ignore us. I think about children playing a game of hide and seek. And they invite the there's a, there's a, a child in the neighborhood that everyone seems to like to pick on. And they invite him to join the game, and he's ecstatic about it. And they all go and hide, and he hides. And after he hides, all the other kids run down the road to a playground and leave him by himself. That feeling of being neglected and abandoned is gut-wrenching. And Jesus, for the first time in his life, is feeling that not from his disciples, not from the religious leaders, but from his eternal father. No wonder he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's distance because of our sin. You'll notice that he doesn't say, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? It's my God, my God. There, there is this sense, or even in the words he uses, that, 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 that evidence the, the feelings of distance. It's not the Father, it's God. It's this being, this entity that is no longer intimate with me. I don't feel it anymore. I feel abandoned. And here's the interesting thing to me about all of this, of how it reveals the heart and the nature of God. It must break God's heart to have to hear Jesus say that. There are some people who believe that that God is, is emotionless. But all you have to do is read the Old Testament. And people say, well, just, those are just anthropomorphic ways of describing God in human terms, and it's not, it's not real, but I, I don't think so. I mean, God, we're created in God's image, and we're certainly not emotionless. I think God feels emotions of joy and pain and heartache. And when he hears his son cry out, Father, why have you abandoned me? It must break his heart. And everything within him must want to rush down and fix it. But he doesn't. Because if God were to step in and to fix what Jesus is feeling, then Jesus would not truly experience our sin. Like he's come to experience. I think sometimes we think that that when we talk about Jesus taking the sins of the world upon himself, it's sort of like he's picking up a big boulder and carrying it around. It's sort of still detached from him. Maybe it's laid on him, but it's not in him. But when you listen to Jesus on the cross and you sense the agony of the cross and you read how Paul describes what Jesus does on the cross, it seems to me that what he's saying is it isn't a matter of of the sin being sort of something Jesus carries, but it's something that gets into him. He feels it. He experiences it. And that's why he cries out, Father, why, God, why have you abandoned Because that's what sin does to us. It's not that God is held back from helping the son or changing things or relieving him. No one has God tied up and he wants to go, but he can't. 
His silence is his choice. And when you think about that, God's silence in that moment is a huge risk to his reputation. What kind of God does that? What kind of God lets his, what kind of father lets his son suffer like that? I mean, again, we would think that when the scriptures paint an image of God, it would be that God always rescues. That God doesn't allow people, particularly his eternal son, to go through something like that. But he does. And he risks his reputation because it is the only way to accomplish his eternal plan of redeeming his creation. And for God to short-circuit that, for God to shortcut that, would short-circuit and shortcut his eternal plan of redeeming everything he's created, including you and me. It is this kind of risk-taking love that changes the world, that changes us, It is in God's willingness to do this, to risk his reputation. That you and I are changed and transformed. That we have hope and life. That we have have eternal life and life now in him. This This is the depth of God's love for us. And it's not as if God isn't suffering with Jesus. Jürgen Moltmann, in his book, The Crucified God, says that when, G- when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a sense in what, he, what he's really saying is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken yourself? Why have you put yourself in this place? For one reason. For the redemption of creation. For the salvation of people, for you and for me. When the shadow of the cross falls on God, it reveals God's great plan, his desire to transform, to redeem, to set free, to make new, to give life every single person. As we think about that, it calls us to response. What do we do with that? How do you respond to that? I think there's really only one response, and that is, in the words of Matthew Bates, to pledge our allegiance to God. To say, I'm all in with you. If God is willing to do that, to this kind of risk-taking, reckless love for us, how can we give him anything less than everything we are? Why would we give him anything less than all that we are? I mean, this is the kind of God you can trust who would go to that length for us. We live in obedient trust of him. So that our prayer, our desire, our yearning is that whatever he wills, that's what we want to will. Whatever he desires, that's what we want to desire. Whatever he wants us to do, that's what we want to do. However he wants us to to relate to people, that's how we want to relate to people. Whatever's important to him, we want to be important to us. All of life, all of life is shaped by the God who would go to this length risk-taking, reckless love for us. And out of that allegiance to God comes a desire and a yearning to want everyone possible, everyone in the world, to know this risk-taking, reckless, loving God. 
we live our lives not just because of what Christ has done for us, but because of what he wants to do for others. And a desire to become his agents of healing and hope and grace in a world of pain and despair, fear. That's his calling on us. This is who God is. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because it drives who we are. This is what God has done for us. In response, what do we do for him? Holy Father, we want to thank you for your risk-taking, reckless love. We are undeserving, but we are grateful for your grace. Give us a new vision of who you are that we might see and desire who you want us to be. We pray this through the grace of Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing. spoke a word you were singing over me you have been so so good to me before I took a breath you breathed your life in me you have been so so
Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.